Good morning. This morning, on the occasion of Orphan Care Sunday, I thought it would be beneficial for us to reflect upon adoption as a theological category. That is, what do we mean when we say that we have been adopted by God? What exactly is that conveying? Those of you who know your Bible well know that the the word adoption, the theological category, isn't in many passages of Scripture, and yet related ideas like the household of God, God's family, sonship in particular, are very prevalent throughout the pages of Scripture. And this morning I'd like to spend much time thinking about our being made sons of God. And the Bible speaks of our adoption in terms of sonship, not because salvation is limited to males, but rather to communicate the fullness of our inheritance, the fullness of our standing in God's household. You see, in biblical times, the eldest son would be the prime heir, the executor of the family's inheritance. And now, through faith in Christ, all believers, male and female, share in the fullness of the divine inheritance through their union with Christ, our older brother. And so examining sonship will be our aim this morning, but let me pray and ask our Holy Spirit, our spirit of adoption, to be with us. Our Father, our Heavenly Father, our adoptive Father, Lord, we pray that you would be with us, that your Holy Spirit would guide us, that you would send him to illumine the pages of Scripture We know that the Spirit searches even the deep things of God, and we pray that He would reveal them to us, that we might know more of the riches of our inheritance in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I've read a good good bit in the doctrine of sonship and was surprised to see how neglected the doctrine has been throughout church history. In fact, the doctrine of sonship is almost entirely neglected until the Protestant Reformation. John Calvin was one of the first theologians to make much of the doctrine at all. Sonship and adoption are foundational elements to Calvin's theological framework. But even after Calvin, we see a tendency for theologians to neglect adoption. For example, Francis Turretin, one of my favorite theologians, collapsed adoption underneath the doctrine of justification. Louis Burkhoff does this, treating it almost as a side effect of justification. Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian who wrote three volumes of systematic theology, mentions adoption only once in 2,000 pages. Thankfully, this general trend within theology uh, does seem to be waning. J.I. Packer, for example, who wrote the wonderful book, Knowing God, which I commend to you, he wrote that, were I asked to focus the New Testament's message down to three words, His proposal would be adoption through propitiation. Adoption through propitiation. There has been, thankfully, a growing interest in the doctrine of adoption over the last 30 years, largely due to the influence of J.I. Packer and other theologians like Sinclair Ferguson. And much that I have learned on the subject has come from them. So let's dig into this glorious doctrine. I want us to first see that the Sonship is a key theme within the scope of redemption. God has chosen to use the idea of sonship through adoption as a key way to illustrate his lavish love and his grace poured out to his chosen ones. And it's a key theme textually. Sonship, that's my first point, sonship is a key theme textually. 
If you think about the major passages in the New Testament that talk about our salvation, like Ephesians 1, Romans 8, Galatians 3 and 4, Hebrews 2, each of these have sonship as a key theme. Ephesians 1, we're told that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, we're told that all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Galatians 3 and 4, we're told that God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Hebrews 2, we're told that it's fitting that God, for whom, by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. One of the goals of God's redemptive activity in Christ was to bring many sons to glory. It's a key theme textually. But sonship is also a key theme in terms of biblical theology, in terms of the movement, the scope, the narrative of redemptive history. We see that at the very beginning because sonship is a focus of creation. All the way at the beginning, sonship is a focus of creation. Now, there exists a debate within the history of theology as to whether or not Adam was a son of God by creation or whether he would become a son of God after a successful period of obedience. I don't want to get into that debate. I think it's rather tedious and misguided. Rather, I think the text indicates to us that Adam both was a son by creation and he was to be a son. He was a son and he was to be a son. I say Adam was a son because Luke 3.38 takes the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, calls him the son of God. But Adam was also to be a son. He was to act like a son. That's part of what's assumed in the language of image. Genesis 1.26, later Genesis 5.2 and 3, we see that Adam and his sons were made in the image of God. And part of being made in God's image is acting like God. God had placed little images, little vice regents, little sub-rulers on earth to bear his image and to spread his glory. Sonship was built into the very fabric of creation. But sonship is also a pattern of redemption. God uses sonship as a pattern of redemption. When God's people were enslaved in Egypt, God calls Moses, he charges him to deliver a message which is in Exodus chapter 4. He says, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say, You shall let my people go. And if you refuse to let them go, Pharaoh, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel is chosen by God to be his very son, a chosen nation to have his inheritance. That's why throughout the Old Testament we see the language of God as father and Israel as son. Jeremiah 31.9, I am the father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. We see God discipline Israel as a son. God takes those who can't help themselves and he adopts them. He makes them their own. He brings them under his loving care and guidance. Sonship is the pattern of redemption. But sonship is also the purpose of restoration. Sonship is the purpose of our restoration. Romans 8, 29, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Why are we predestined? 
Why are we made more and more into the image of Christ? Well, one reason is that so Christ might be an older brother to many younger siblings, that we might be that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. That's why the author of Hebrews can speak in terms of brothers and the household of God in Hebrews 10. Christ has once and for all made a sacrifice that he purifies and and provides forgiveness to the entire household, to the whole household. Sonship is the purpose of creation. It is the pattern of redemption. And it is the focus of our restoration. And in God's wisdom, he has chosen sonship as a key theme in biblical theology across the grand scope of redemptive history. But moving on, I'd like for us to see some marks of sonship. If it is true that we receive sonship from God, what are the things that ought to mark us? If you think back to your classes in perhaps psychology, you were involved with the debates in the endless literature about nature versus nurture. Which one is more formative to us? How we were raised or where we came from, where we were generated from? The New Testament emphasizes both of these as it relates to our sonship. John and Paul in particular emphasize both of these things. John speaks more to our nature as regenerated, as being born again sons of God. Paul speaks more of our legal status as being adopted into God's household. And so let's look at some of these marks. If you will, turn to me to 1 John, John's first letter, chapter 5. John speaks often in his letter about things that are very much related to our theme of sonship. We can see 1 John 5, verse 13. Our first point, that sonship is characterized by a changed relationship to Christ. Sonship is characterized by a changed relationship to Christ. 1 John 5, 13. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Do you see the connection there between believing and being born of God? They go together, the mind and the new birth. Theologians might say that regeneration has a noetic effect upon us. It's another way of changing our mind. When we are born again, our mind is changed. You can read the same in John chapter 3. Regeneration is taught within the context of faith in Jesus Christ. They go together. You believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the chosen Son of God. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent by the Father. And when you're made a son of God, you also believe rather than Remain a child of the world that disbelieves. Sonship is characterized by a changed relationship to Christ. In John, we also see, second, that sonship is marked by a changed relationship to sin. Changed relationship to sin. You can see that in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3 verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning, has either seen him or known him. Skip down to verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Being born of God is being born of a new nature, a nature that necessarily produces radical cleavage from sin patterns of the world. The believer will of course, continue to sin, but he will not like it. He'll, 
He'll hate it. He'll be revolted by it. He will not wallow in it. He will fight against it. He'll do all that he can to get away from it and do it in a way that's fundamentally distinct from his previous relationship to sin. See, the old nature, the world, revels in sin. It wallows in it. It enjoys the muck and the mire. But the new nature, the nature born according to the Spirit, not born according to the flesh, will not enjoy those sins. And we will, in fact, begin to act in a manner consistent with our nature. Our divine heredity comes into play. Those born of God will by nature begin to act like God. God's sons are characterized by a changed relationship to sin. But thirdly, in the writings of John, we see that sonship is characterized by a changed relationship to the church as well. We have a changed relationship to the church. We can look at chapter 4 of 1 John. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love for one another is grounded in our common new birth. God has made us born again, and because of that, our shared new life and our new nature, because of those things, we ought to love one another. Furthermore, John makes clear that this love is to be practical, not merely verbal. 1 John 2.10, 3, 3.4, 3.17, and 18 all speak to this. John says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees their brother in need and yet closes his heart against him... How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's very much related to what James said earlier in our congregational reading. Furthermore, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, shows us that love of the brothers is a mark of our maturing in our new birth. If God so loved us, John says, we ought to also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected or matured in us. Maturing Christians will see a growing love for their siblings in the household of God, which is evidence of God's love being perfected in us. That raises a good question for each of us. Is my love for the church growing? Am I increasing in love for the other children of God. John would have us to reflect. John takes this so seriously that he uses some harsh language in verse 20. He says, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not have the love of his brother, whom he, therefore he cannot have the love of God, whom he has not seen. Love for the brother is necessary. It's a natural part of our sonship, and it flows from our new nature. Fourth, we see that sonship is marked by a changed relationship to the world. Sonship is marked by a changed relationship to the world. 1 John 5, 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Faith. John tells us in chapter 16 of his gospel, verse 33, that Christ has overcome the world. And it is through our faith, through our new birth, that we become sons of God. Therefore, we also become, by our union with the victor, victor ourselves. We become conquerors. We become overcomers of the world because our older brother is the firstborn of many conquerors. And so far, we've seen in the writings of John 
several marks of sonship, our relationship to Christ, to sin, to the church, and to the world. Now let's think about Paul's writings and think about some marks from him about our sonship. Paul's the only author in the New Testament to use the language of adoption to speak of our sonship. He emphasizes the legal and the relational aspects of our sonship, as opposed to John, who emphasized the more natural aspects of our sonship. And so we can look at Ephesians chapter 5. You can turn there if you'd like. Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul gives us our first mark of sonship, which is that we will walk in the light. If we are sons of God, we will walk in the light. Ephesians 5 Verse 8, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you're in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light, he says, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. You you unbelievers, as unbelievers, were children walking in darkness, but now God has made you children of light. And it would be unfitting, inappropriate for us to walk in darkness as children of light. He uses similar language in 1 Thessalonians 5.5. We are all children of light, children of the day, not children of darkness. Therefore, we should walk in a manner consistent with our new status. Our new status as adopted sons, and God has removed the darkness from us and brought us into the light. Everything that belonged to the orphan has been taken by the father, and everything that is the father's has been given to the son. That means all of our debts our liabilities, our weaknesses, our old allegiances, our old bondages, our old slaveries, all of it's gone, taken by the Father. And all of the rights and privileges of the Father have been passed on to us. The position, the status, the rank, the inheritance, the future, the blessings, everything of the Father has been given to us in Christ. There was no reason for us to go back to the darkness. No reason for us to leave the household of light. No reason for us to wander down the paths of sin. What more could we have to gain? God's adoptive children ought to have the mark of sonship, that they walk in the light. But Paul also teaches that we should be imitators of the Father. That's a big Pauline emphasis. We should imitate the Father. Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are the children of God. And it's in our nature for us to imitate our Father, just as our children naturally imitate us. We're filled with His very Spirit, and we ought to walk in the same manner in which He walks, imitating His every move. Those who are parents among us probably shared the same experience as I did of being slightly terrified at how quickly your children imitate you. And how well they do it. They don't even have to think about it usually. It comes to them naturally. It's in the the air that they breathe. It's in everything that they do. Children, indeed all of us, were made to imitate. To see and to do. And we are encouraged by Paul to breathe in the very environment. The air of the environment in the new household of God. That makes us our beloved children. God's beloved children. You're in a new household. And you take part of the new household of God. And so act like your father. That's what Paul would say. Behave like your family. A mark of sonship in Paul is that we should be imitators of God. 
Now we've seen some marks of sonship. Now let's list out some of the benefits of our sonship. What are the practical benefits of these marks of sonship? What are the repercussions of this consciousness that we are indeed, through Christ, sons of God? Well, first, it produces within us a profound sense of security. Our adoption produces a profound sense of security. We can note this looking at at natural adoption. Statistically speaking, those people that do not know their father grow up with a profound sense of insecurity, instability. They wrestle with it, sometimes for much of their lives. But we can have a profound sense of security because of the truth of God's adoption. We can know that we've been adopted by a faithful father and that the adoption is final and that nothing in heaven and on earth can change the legal legal transaction or the change of our nature. We are sons of God by verdict, and by new birth. And we are secure as sons of the Father and as younger brothers to Christ, the firstborn among many brothers. And so we need not be anxious. We need not be fearful because we know that God has made us His own and He will bring us home. Next, another practical benefit of our sonship is that it produces a sense of direction. Being a son of God gives us a sense of direction. If you remember back to Luke 2, when Jesus wandered off and Joseph and Mary didn't know where he was, and they found him, you remember what he said to them? He said, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? That I must be about my father's business. And in Christ, we can make the same claim. We can see the the father in the face of Christ, and we can see the father in Christ's business. We can follow him in the family trade, as it were. This is true in a global sense. God is about the business of His own glory, of spreading His fame around the world. It's true in a moral sense. We can be about the business of righteousness and holiness, the family trade. And so we follow Him in the same family business, the trade of holiness and perfection. Third, the knowledge that we're sons of God not only produces security and direction, it also produces a moral resiliency in our lives produces a moral resiliency in our lives. The knowledge of our sonship can produce courage, steadfastness that can be found nowhere else. To contradict our new nature, to sin, is in one sense the hardest thing for us to do. How could I sin against my perfect father? We hate it. We, We feel the gravity of it. We want to battle against it deep down in our very spirit because we have the spirit of adoption within us crying out, waging against this sin. And we can be steeled in our steadfastness and our courage in the battle for holiness because we know that we are sons of God, born of the very spirit of God, forever members of the household of God. And that knowledge provides a sense of security, direction, and moral fiber as we battle for holiness. Now let's move on and see some privileges of sonship. Some privileges of being made sons of God and brought into His household. And the first is the privilege of God's fatherly care. We have the privilege and the promise of God's fatherly care. The Father has made us to be part of His very own household and He has promised to take care of us. And the privilege of God's fatherly care is the remedy for our anxiety. We can instead remain courageous instead of anxious and fearful 
because we know we've been made God's sons. We know that if the God of the universe is our Father, what can happen to us outside of His control? Nothing. What, what could we possibly lack that we genuinely need? Nothing. What protection do we need that is not a, available to us? None. Jesus tells us to look at the lilies of the field, how beautiful they are. Solomon in all of his glory wasn't arrayed as one of these, and yet they're gone in a moment. And if he cares for the lilies in such a way, which are here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will he care for his own sons and daughters? God knows the very hairs on your head, and so you need not worry that he's ignorant of your knees, nor that he's not powerful enough to, to handle them. We can have courage rather than anxiety because we have been adopted by God. Second privilege of our sonship is the privilege of access to the Father. Access to the Father. When Adam sinned, he lost access to the very Father in whose, in whose image he was made and with whom he had walked side by side in the garden. He was then shut out, separated because of his sin, alienated from God and from God's perfect holiness. And that separation was highlighted in the law of the Old Testament and pictured through the separation of the Holy of Holies in the temple from the rest of God's people on the other side of the curtain. But our sonship now means that we have access to the Father. The curtain separating us from God has been torn down. Ephesians 2 makes clear that we who were once far off have been brought near. We have access to the Father again. We have a relationship once severed by Adam and his sin now restored to us, giving us access again to our Heavenly Father. Indeed, it's because of our sonship, because of our access by Jesus, that we can pray the Lord's Prayer. Right? We do, think about it. We don't pray the Father who is in heaven, do we? We pray our Father who is in heaven. Sonship is our possession, our, our access, and our access to the Father. It's real, it's direct, it's legal, it's relational, it's unbreakable. All because of Christ. Third privilege, third privilege of our sonship is having Christ as our big brother and our kinsman redeemer. Having Christ as our big brother and our kinsman redeemer. This is not the only aspect of Christ's work, but his role as our big brother and our redeemer is a significant one. We have, because of our sonship of the Father, knowledge of Christ, particularly knowledge of him as our Redeemer. It's loaded with Old Testament imagery when you say that word. See, in the Old Testament, when somebody died without a protector, without a provider, like if a woman's husband passed away and she had no sons, she had no one to take care of her. So, someone in the family, outside of the family, would step up and would provide for her a future. He would be called a kinsman redeemer. He would effectively purchase this woman from a life of sure poverty, bondage, possibly slavery, a life of scavengering, panhandling for food and for survival. But we don't have that because Christ has become our kinsman redeemer. He has stepped in. He has purchased us from slavery and bondage, redeemed us from the poverty of our previous life of sin and death. And he's given us the inheritance of his household. This is our privilege through our sonship. Fourth privilege, because of our adoption, is the privilege of discipline within the family. The privilege of loving discipline within the family. Here I'm thinking of Hebrews 12. 
God disciplines those whom He loves. He doesn't let us wander down the path of destruction, but He loves us enough to provide fatherly correction, fatherly training. He doesn't correct us as a slave. He doesn't lash us. We, we don't get reprimanded and chastised like a bondservant. He lovingly guides us, redirects us, trains us, if necessary, rebukes us, chastises us, because He is our lovingly heavenly Father. And He wants us to be holy like He is holy. We have the privilege of loving discipline within the family. But fifth, a fifth privilege that we have by being made sons of God is receiving the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of adoption. Receiving the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, we read of this glorious good news of our adoption, of our being made sons of God through the merit of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of son, as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. <coughs> the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and heir, fellow heirs with Christ. Excuse me. We have the privilege of the spirit of adoption that testifies with our spirit that we truly are sons of God. And because of that sonship, we have the privileges of the Father's care, access to the Father. We have Christ as our older brother and redeemer, the privilege of loving discipline, and the privilege of the spirit of adoption. Now lastly, I'd like to close by considering the source of our sonship. The source of our sonship. You might think that this is where I would begin the message, but I wanted to end here because this is really where the nectar of this doctrine derives its sweetness. The short answer is that the source of our sonship is God Himself, particularly God the Father. Our sonship has its root in the love of, the God, of God the Father. Back in Roman times, much of the adoptions that were done, using the term that Paul used, was done out of either profit or done out of convenience. The convenience of the one doing the adopting. It was somehow in the best interest of the adopter to come in and to adopt the orphan. It was legal, but it was not spiritual. It wasn't usually emotional, and it usually wasn't relational. But God's adoption was not so. 1 John 3, 1 says to us, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Oh, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. God's adoption was not out of profit, not out of convenience. In fact, it was quite entirely the opposite. It was out of His grace and love and at great cost. It was the love of the Father that motivated Him to make us sons. There was no inherent value for us to contribute. There was no profit for us to add to His fortune. There was no convenience that we could add to His lifestyle. We are purely beneficiaries. This verse, see what kind of love the Father has for us, or literally what, what size of love, what manner of love the Father has for us. This verse ought to echo. It ought to reverberate throughout our lives and our ministries. And do you see the logic that undergirds the verse? People might, might naturally reason this way. If God is your Father, then you must be His Son. But that's not what John is doing underneath that verse. His logic is, if you are God's Son then God has lavished love upon you 
to make you his son. And the deepest, his deepest desire for you is that you would believe that he loves you as a father loves his son. That's what John is telling us. If you are God's son, then it is because God loves you and has loved you. See what kind, what size of love the father has for us. And this is the truth, the love of the father that I wanted to end with because it was really the first thing attacked in the garden. When the serpent was questioning, did God really say? He was, he was getting Adam to question the character, the love of the Father. Don't you see that the Father is keeping something from you, Adam? Don't you see that the Father wants to withhold something good that you deserve? He must not love you, Adam. That's what the serpent was insinuating. It's the same lie that the Pharisees taught as well. If you want, you can turn to Luke 15, and we'll, we'll close there. Luke chapter 15, you have the parable of the prodigal son. Very well-known story. Luke 15, I'll start reading in verse 17. But when he, the prodigal, came to himself, and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I die here in hunger? I'll get up, and I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He's saying, I have sinned against you. He's saying, I've rejected you, Father. I merely wanted your money, and therefore have I forfeited my right to be your son. Let me be a slave instead. Verse 20, and he arose and came to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cuts him off. And he says to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. We struggle often in our lives to believe that God really loves us like this father. We know that we've sinned. We feel the weight of our frivolous lives, how much we've reveled in sin and we merely want to come back and be servants in the household of God, but your father will not allow you to be a mere servant. He comes back like the father in this story with, with tears of joy and thankfulness streaming down his cheeks, so thankful that his son has returned home. But notice the older brother's reaction, which is especially striking when laid beside the prodigal's response. The older brother responds in verse 29, and I like the the NIV's translation here, he says, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I've been slaving away for you, Father, for years. That's the heart of the unconverted man. The man who has only the natural birth, who has not been reborn into the Son of God. The younger brother was prepared to become a slave, to become miserable. But the father responded, Son, I love you. I want you. I welcome you. I weep over you. Let's put this older brother's response right next to what we read earlier from 1 John. Right? The older brother says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. But 1 John 3, 1 says, look at the amazing love the Father has bestowed upon us. 
That's the difference between a child of God and a natural man. The child of God marvels that at the lavish love that the Father has shown to him, but the natural man, the, the child of the world, sees only his efforts and his good works, only his slaving. And he can't see past his own works because of his pride to the loving Father beyond them that offers genuine sonship. That sonship, that offer remains for you today. If you have not become a child of God by faith, then I urge you this morning to believe in the Son of God, to hear the texts that have been read to you this morning, to see the love of the Father who bids you to come home, to know that He stands willing to invite you back into His household, into His family forever. And for those of us who have been born of God, we, we have before us the highest privileges, one of the highest privileges of the sons of God, the Lord's table. We have been brought out of death, out of slavery, out of God's house, into full sonship, full access with the Father, full access to His table, seated right next to our big brother. We have the right to dine with the very creator of the universe and enjoy fellowship with Him forever. And this table is reserved for those who have been made a part of the household of God. And so if you're like the saints we read about in Acts chapter 2, devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers, then we invite you to join us. Join us at the table. But if you have not yet joined a church or you're not in good standing, then become part of the household of God by faith and wait and let these plates pass. Consider the invitation that has been extended to you and come to God for adoption as a son. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would bless this meal of fellowship, that you would use the elements of this meal to build up your church, to remind us that we have indeed been made your sons and that nothing can take that away. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.